Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi everybody, I hope you enjoyed my new um, Wild Wild podcast theme remix there. <laughs> I tried to make it sound a bit like Batman from the 60s. Um, because we are back, it's a new year, it's a new season, which is quite good timing, that's mainly coincidental. Anyway, so welcome to Wild Wild Podcast, I am Adrian Smith and I am joined by my incredibly busy co-host, Rodney Barnett. Hello, Rod. Hello, Adrian. How are you doing today? Yeah, well, exciting times. Um, I'm, you know, there seem to be projects left, right, and centre for both of us. Um, do you have anything that you quickly want to mention that is out soon or out now? Oh my! Well, the only thing that's out imminently uh, is the uh, the track that Troy Gwen and I did together for um, Mono Macabro's release of. Dr. Jekyll and the Wolfman, which is about to ship to the pr- people who pre-ordered it uh, the end of last year uh, any day now. So that's going to start arriving in people's mailboxes soon. And then soon thereafter, the standard edition will be available to uh, those who did not get the uh, the, the, uh, the early limited edition. So that's coming out. We did a commentary on that film, which cool. is uh, one of the one of the extremely fun and very entertaining Valdemar Daninsky films that Nashie made. So that's the thing that's imminent, and it's really the only thing at this point that I can talk about openly. <laughs> so, yes, we have to, all this secrecy. Um, yeah, I, well, I, I don't know, maybe since, before, I can't remember when it arrived or when we did our last episode, but obviously our Danza Macabre Volume 2 um, contribution that is out now. I think that probably arrived in the post for people since our last episode. So hopefully, some of you have had the chance to, some of you have had the chance to uh, watch Castle of Blood or Danza Macabra. Both versions are available on there, and I think our commentary is on the Danza Macabra version, if I'm not mistaken. I haven't actually watched it to check. 
Uh, I haven't watched the the UHD because I don't have the ability, but I did no. check our track on the Blu-ray, and uh, I, I managed to listen to us talk without cringing too much because I I can't do that. I hear my voice on a on a silvery mm. disc, and I do freak out a little bit. So. <laughs> and we, but it worked, right? We were there. That's oh the yeah, we were definitely there. Okay, good. Yeah, so that was very exciting. Um, also, since then, I've had the opportunity to make. A, uh, to record a video interview for the uh, the next in the Forgotten Jelly box sets from Vinegar Syndrome. So they are doing include one of the films included in the volume six is Antonio Margariti's Naked You Die, mm. and as everyone knows, of course, we are big Margariti fans uh, here on this podcast and on all the podcasts that, that we've done over the years. I'm sure. Um, so and but you know, a few years ago, I tracked down the British actress who is in Naked You Die, and it turns out that she lives not far away from me, and I've become quite good friends with her over the last few years. And so when I found out that they were doing Naked You Die, I immediately jumped at the chance to get an interview with her on the disc, because she's told me great stories about making that film, and uh, I really wanted her to be part of that. So managed to put it together very short notice, like a week before Christmas. So that is going to be on there, and I'm really pleased about that. So, yeah, my friend Sally Smith is on that disc telling her stories of visiting Italy uh, in the late 60s and shooting Naked You Die. So I'm very pleased that everyone else is going to get to hear her fun stories on that one. Um, And, of course, uh, you and I are now involved in another secret commentary uh, project. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. So for that reason, we're doing this episode now, but then my hopes of getting another episode out relatively quickly are um, somewhat scuppered because we need to spend the next couple of weeks working on that. So um, maybe we'll get to do another, uh, the next episode of this podcast by the end of January. But uh, don't hold your breath. Is <laughs> Is what I'm saying. So there's start, a, there's a lot going on, folks. Yeah. yeah, we're starting the season now, but then you may have to wait a little while for the next one, which of course does mean that you've got some time there to do your homework mm. and uh, maybe watch some of the films that we have coming up. So I thought. So we're doing this season. I don't know if I've said what it is. This is a fumetti uh, or sort of comic book superhero season. This is one that I've wanted to do ever since we started the podcast so i'm excited that we're finally here so let me tell you all what films we have in the pipeline uh i should have got this prepared i've got it here in front of us we're going to start with criminal today yes criminal exciting okay and then super argo uh and the faceless men or super argo versus diabolic diabolicus 1966 as well uh, yeah, because there's two Superargo films, and if we've got time, we'll try them, try and cover them both, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> uh, yes, and then that's followed by uh, Argo Man, the Fantastic Superman, which is a really fun one. Uh, the Three Fantastic Supermen uh, from 1967. Uh, one that I, I think I have seen, I'm not looking forward to revisiting, but we'll see what, that, <laughs> we'll see what that's like. Yeah, is that is it um, Alfonso Brescia, that one? I can't remember. I'll be honest, I haven't gone back to look, but yeah. I do fear that is true, yes. I know we've got at least one of his coming up, which will be uh, something to look forward to. 
Um, and then we are dipping back into the Ruggiero Deodato well with Phenomenal and the Treasure of Tutankhamun. I'm looking forward to that one. That one that yeah, one. that's going to uh, be fun. Then uh, 1968's Avenger X, also known as Mr. X, which I saw years ago, but I can't remember much about it, so that's going to be interesting to revisit. Yeah, and then I ummed and ahed about whether we should include Danger Diabolic or not, because it's the film that, you know, if anyone, if anyone has seen one of these, it's that one. True. Uh, but then I thought, why deny ourselves of the opportunity of maybe picking up some new listeners who are searching for a podcast about Diabolic? So, <laughs> And also, it, it would kind of be crazy not to do what is obviously the best one. True, um, I guess so. So, yeah, Danger Diabolic uh, is coming in in the middle. And then... Uh, Satanic from 1968, uh, one that mm. I think i saw years ago but i have no memory of so that'll be interesting mm. to revisit yeah that's a um, a female masked villain that one should be fun um and i believe the comic satanic the comic was written by the same people who wrote criminal so yes. there's a we're all sort of full circle already yeah and then we're going to check out bruno corbucci's miss stiletto um, which is based on the comic isabella duchessa de diavoli or Isabella, Duchess of the Devil. I guess that's what it says. Yeah, I recently saw that for the first time just last year and actually really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Um, and then we do get to, I'm afraid, what's, <laughs> <laughs> very, very afraid. We get, we're going to end on a damp squib, yes. Uh-huh. Like, it's like our space season again. <laughs> Super Stooges versus the Wonder Women from 1974. Uh-huh. Uh, which I, I know I, I've seen part of. I don't know that I was ever able to work up the gumption to finish it. I know, and I know that, like, because unlike a couple of previous seasons, like the space season, basically we just did the only ten films that existed in that True. particular genre. Now there are more masked villain, masked hero, superhero films than this, and so I kind of undenied about which ones to put in. But I thought because mainly it's the '60s, sort of mid to late '60s. But it, I, thought, I just thought it would be interesting to see what was happening just a few years later as the last gasps of the genre. So, yeah, that's why we're doing that one, I guess. Which is Alfonso Brescia, so um, apologies in advance for that one. And then, I, yeah, so that's, that's our main run. If we've got time, I'd like to fit in the new Diabolic film, because in Italy right now there is a new Diabolic trilogy. The third film is coming out sometime this year. I think they just had the premiere recently, so it's it's out pretty soon. Um, so they're sort of doing diabolic again. So it'd be fun to to check that out at the end if we've got time. But anyway, there you go. So most, if not all, well, I mean, obviously I've picked these because they're all available. Some are available on DVD. There's a couple on Blu-ray, and others you'll just have to track down various murky, non-legal sources to uh, to find them. But um, they're all out there uh, in various forms. Again, it's another genre where it would. I, I just sort of don't understand quite why no one's done a restoration and a box set of some of these. It would be I know. sort of cr- crying out to be stuck out together in a big box. Well, I mean, I, I guess this will join join the other little weird genres of this kind of exploitation film from Europe that I, I'll, I'll add this to the list of genres that I just keep calling for people to start paying attention to and start putting mm-hmm. out because I think mm. there would be more interest if, uh, as soon as people knew they were available. 
and, and you know this along with like the the uh, the, the rapiers and ruffles stuff you know the adventure stuff that doesn't <laughs> fit into the big muscle yeah. man stuff that was being produced in the 60s by in, in Italy in droves as well that would be fun and uh, yes the the fumetti stuff would be a great you know there, yeah. there are several box sets that I can imagine being produced as to whether they would sell or not I would you know I would <laughs> hope it would be a kind of you know if you build it they will come situation but you know mm. who knows I mean rapiers and ruffles that's that's the perfect title for our next season I think that's we've got that right there <laughs> I, um, I, I I was when I, when I was writing a piece on um, some of the films that Umberto Lindsay made in the early 60s I was struggling to to find some kind of catch-all phrase for that particular kind of genre and I just rattled that one off and was like well that's as close as anyone it, it, that's as yeah. close as anything I can find so I'll just go ahead and use that as a as a, as a phrase for them so you know there that's you go good there you go well let's do it and but yeah, I've got the sneaking suspicion, Rod, that um, the Blu-ray company that you and I um, have theoretically set up is going to go bust pretty quickly. But <laughs> yes, probably. But at so. least at least we would have copies if even if no one else. Yes, did. yes, all of that work and all of that bankruptcy would be worth it. <laughs> so let's get to our first film, Criminal. One of the first film adaptations of the Italian uh, comic. So, in the first, what the first comic of this sort was Diabolic, nineteen sixty-two, and um, Diabolic. Oh yeah, Max Bunker and Magnus. Max Bunker was the writer. Magnus was the artist. Uh, Max Bunker was only twenty-five, which is pretty yeah, cool. Yeah. And they decided to make a character that was like Diabolic, only even worse a person. So criminal, um, he will he he's got no morals at all. He is basically uh, he will, he kills women and men. He will seduce women and then kill them if it serves his purposes. And there's a kind of psychopath or perhaps yeah. a, a fictional blending of the two. Uh, he, yeah. Uh, uh, there are there are qualities about diabolic to admire that you know you can i mean he's he he sometimes acts as a bit of a robin hood character but criminal's just a scumbag and oh, yeah. you're just following his exploits for the the sheer jolly joy of it so and they were known as fumetti neri or, or basically black comics comics that were for adults only mm-hmm. because the artwork was quite um explicit, explicit. And obviously the, yes yeah the characters are quite sadistic um, and the success of Criminal inspired loads more. There are tons of these things, including there's a character called Sadistic, who um, was because the, they also had these things called Photo Romanza, which is basically photo comics. So there's a whole series of Sadistic comics where you've got this guy in the skeleton costume, um, 
beating up people and killing women and doing all kinds of sadistic violent stuff but these were photos so that and they were also considered to be quite shocking and after a couple of years people a bit like the um the sort of horror comic saga in america and also over here um once i think people started to realize what was going on in these comics there were cries for uh, for things to be toned down and i think after a couple of years criminal did actually get a wife as a way of trying to tone down the sort of sexual violence of the comics um yeah which the first time i saw this film i wasn't expecting there to mm. be a a kind of ex-wife character in the film yeah. i just assumed he was such a psychopath and a loner that yeah. you know, he would keep himself free of any entanglements that might slow him down but although uh, he um, he throws her under a bus pretty quick yeah exactly i think that <laughs> and, and in a film that that played with a harder edge that might have really kind of been a nice well, sting but yeah yeah but that's yeah so that's a good point so umberto lenzi he felt the comics were too violent although things i've read i've been reading um troy howarth's book and also roberto curti wrote a book about these films mm-hmm. um and the suggestion is that he'd never really read any of the comics so maybe he just picked up on the uh the what's the word i'm looking for here the reputation the comics had for violence and, and, and yeah. so on so he wanted to tone it down which is funny because when mario Bava came to make diabolic he wanted to sort of ramp that stuff up um but yes you can imagine if, if criminal the film criminal had been made by somebody who had a much more adult oriented um focus that could have been much more violent much more sexy um potentially more interesting than it kind of ended up it's it's tu- it's basically been turned into a euro spy film by umberto lenzi but um but anyway but yeah the, the script originally the the comic writer Max Bunker, he wanted to write the script, but because Umberto Lenzi wanted a sort of safer film, he turned it down. So it's sort of a shame, because you can imagine... So the, Umberto Lenzi wrote the script, but he never really read that many of the comics, by all accounts. So it could have been a very different film. And I, and I think I always end up... Uh, I've seen this film before. This will be my second or third time seeing it, but the first time I saw it was a long time back. And every time I come away from a viewing of criminal, uh, criminal with the idea that this probably should have been a bit more adult. Um, mm. there should have been a bit more of an edge to the character. Um, but I mean, I enjoy what's there. I really do, but I do get a sense that, uh, this, this is a character straining at the leash and really could have, would have been more interesting if the, if given a bit more, uh, get given a bit more play into, to, into the fields of the nastiness that the comic always had. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently, so there's a backstory, which we don't get in the film because we just come into, it's like we sort of pick up in the middle of, uh, criminals adventures. So, Apparently, he was a former circus circus acrobat who was abandoned by his father and then grew up in an orphanage followed by a reform school. So that's why he turned into a cold-blooded murderer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As you would. Um, So the costume is a sort of hangover from growing up in the circus. But if he was an acrobat, we we don't see much of that in the film. So there's a little mean, bit of it. There's some there's some interesting stuff with him, uh, le- you know, leaping off of um, 
uh, leaping off of uh, like roofs onto uh, different places, and a li- yeah. there's a little bit of the acrobatics. But yeah, mm-hmm. I would have expected a little bit more, especially since you can essentially just put an acrobat in that outfit and film yeah. it from a distance and have crazy stuff happen. And yeah, yeah. In the in the sequel, which we'll talk about a little bit, um, the Mark of Criminal, there is a sequence where he climbs up the front of a house. Which and, is pretty nice, yeah. And then jumps down from a quite high balcony all in one shot, which was quite impressive. But again, like you said, because it's a it's a bit like the sort of Spider-Man thing, you can have anyone in that costume um, doing the stunts. Although in this film, there is a sequence where he has to run across... He, run, he climbs up onto the roof of a train in that classic style that every film does and runs along the top of the train. And that is actually our hero, Glenn Saxon, doing that without the mask on. Which I was really impressed with, actually. I was like, wow, that's really the actor running along the top of the train. Uh, Tom Cruise, eat your heart out. (laughs) And apparently that's because his stunt double had been injured. So he wasn't available, so he just did it himself. It reminded me of, have you ever seen the first Great Train Robbery? With Sean uh, the Connery. one directed by Michael Crichton with Sean yeah. Connery up on top of the train. Yeah, that's yeah, amazing. that was really Connery. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah, that's I like. I could not believe what I was watching. <laughs> that's amazing. That he's really on the train and he's jumping down to miss the bridges and and all of that. It's pretty amazing. But anyway, um, yeah. So yeah. So there could have been more of the acrobatic stuff, but it does, I suppose, explain a little bit his tendency towards wanting to wear a full skeleton costume because otherwise we don't really the film doesn't give us anything it doesn't give us any backstory or particular motivation for the costume in the second film there's a couple of times where people see him and think he's a ghost so that sort of makes sense then that maybe he's wearing this costume to inspire fear and make people think that he's a ghost and, and that's something I, you know that that they could have played up more. I mean, when when they, in, especially in the second film, you're right. That is something that that gets played around with because people will see him at a distance and the, the, the nature of his costume. It you know when it, when they're seeing him at night, the nature of his costume does make it look kind of creepy, and so you can see how that could maybe spook somebody. But yeah. they they don't do a lot with that at all, and they don't do anything with it in this film. It's essentially no. just a, you know, for lack of a better term, just a disguise. Yeah. Um, and so let's, before we get into the plot, then let's just talk very, with, with Umberto Lenzi, what more can we say? We've talked about him many times. If if you want to hear us talk about Umberto Lenzi, go back and check out some of our Polizia Teschi uh, episodes. Um, but we, so our, our star here is Glenn Saxon, mm-hmm. uh, the most, the weirdest spelling of Saxon, Saxon, which I think was a, <laughs> that's not his real name anyway. No, it's not. Um, He's actually yeah. a Dutch actor. His real name, and I'm going to probably mess this up, is his real name's Ro, Roel Boss or Boss. Yeah, why, why not? He's. I, it's. I, I cannot speak that language, so who knows <laughs> how a proper name in that language yeah. is spoken? Um, and we've spoken about him before briefly because he was in Luana. Yes, exactly. Was, and Luana was shot uh, just after, like not long after Criminal. But he's also obviously got some uh, experience. He came to Italy and immediately started popping up in in sort of westerns. He's played Django uh, once or twice, I think, or maybe just once. Uh, Did a few westerns and then, yeah, Loana and uh, Criminal and 
Then he ended up going off to Germany to do some sex comedies, which... Yeah, I, 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 I was not aware that his, his 70s films went into the direction of school of erotic enjoyment and things yes. of that nature, but hey. Well, I mean, who wouldn't, I suppose? Well, yeah, I've, if offered the cash. <laughs> um, but one of the, the other stars we should talk about this film, somebody who I know you are very familiar with, is Helga Linné. Oh my, yes. I've spent wanna, many I mean, an hour, res- uh, I guess the word would be researching. I'm going to I'm gonna use that word. Uh, researching. <laughs> researching and, uh, and, career. Yeah, and rhapsodizing about her on your other podcasts. But in case anybody listening hasn't heard you talk about her on the Nashi cast or the Bloody Pit, can you just give us a kind of brief summary of your feelings, I mean, about Helga Lene? Uh, Helga Lene has always been, since my first encounter with her, which probably would have been in Horror Rises from the Tomb, she's always been one of those incredibly gorgeous women uh, who worked in uh, European exploitation who not only is just stunningly attractive and apparently from the moment that I first saw her, more than willing to be naked on screen, but also very effective as an actress. In other words, she's not just there because she's a beautiful face. Uh, I have really enjoyed being able to track her her career. Um, she was uh, a dancer and an acrobat uh, in her uh, in her childhood. Her first movie appearance was apparently at the age of ten. Um, so by the time you get into the 60s, she's been, she's been in movies with larger and larger parts. Of course, her early, her early, her early appearances in film were, were bit roles and you know, thing, thing, things without dialogue. And then yeah. she uh, moved fully into uh, a, a long-term career there. And uh, she is always, always good, and no matter what role you see her in, but it is wild having started with uh, her appearance in Horror Rises from the Tomb, which was made at the time she was 40, to, to go back and look at her uh, uh, in her 20s and 30s and realize that this woman was incredibly talented. She obviously trained hard and well to become a screen actress, and she's very good. She's fantastic here, in, yeah. uh, where she gets to play two, two, two of yeah. herself. Twins. And uh, she's she's uh, she's always a bright spot in any uh, any film you run across, and um, she's uh, she's uh, uh, she's still with us today, thank goodness, uh-huh. and has uh, talked uh, at length in many interviews, thank goodness, also <laughs> about her career and talked openly about uh, what she enjoyed and what she didn't. And those those interviews are highly entertaining if you run across them. She's. Uh, uh, outspoken in what she uh, likes and what she doesn't like, and she uh, well, I guess at this point she's of course reached the point where it doesn't matter. She <laughs> says about anyone her her career ha- ha- is made, and and yeah. uh, she's 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 amazing. And uh, I did think it amazing to find that she also pops up in the sequel, playing a completely different character. Um, yes, that that confused me. I have to admit. <laughs> I, I I think that it's one of those situations where the the first film was a success. And they they may have just wanted to uh, bring along as much of the ca- you know they they were able to bring along three of the cast yeah. and uh, it was it would have been impossible to really kind of logically include the previous well, character she played so they'll just invent another character for her for in some my reason. in my head they weren't twins they were triplets 
<laughs> well, then you might want to tell the people who wrote the dialogue in the film because she's never referenced as having anything to do yeah. with the others. This is the uh, this is the estranged sister who had nothing to do with the other two. <laughs> but uh, I'll just recommend uh, that. Uh, well, for, if you if you're a fan of Spanish horror at all, you will have run across Helga Linné in uh, everything from Horror Express to uh, the Lorelai's Grasp, the Vampire's Night Orgy. Um, she was even in a Santo film, Santo versus Dr. Death, one of my all-time favorite El Santo films. And uh, my, my, my goodness, you, you will not go wrong. Uh, she was in a couple of movies with uh, Paul Nashi, including The Mummy's Revenge. She pops up in The Killer of Dolls uh, in, a, in, a, in a very difficult role, but also she's, she's excellent in that as well. Yeah. Um, Helga Lay is, uh, you can follow her career and really have a good time. Uh, you might even want to dip into a film she made uh, called uh, Black Candles that came out in 1982. That one's available on, uh, on Blu-ray as well, here in the States at least. Oh, you and, did the commentary for that, didn't you? Yeah, Troy and I did a commentary for that film as well. And, Isn't there uh, something to do with goats? <laughs> there's a, Yes, in Black Candles there is a... Uh, a bestiality scene uh right. it is we're pretty sure faked but it has nothing to do with helga Lene, <laughs> folks so don't uh, okay. don't let that dissuade you uh, i'm just getting flashbacks now to i just recently watched the antichrist because that's just oh, come out yeah. blu-ray and there's a quite unpleasant visual image conjured up um that's be- be- between the main woman and a goat uh in that film sorry i'm just suddenly that's all i can see now <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, sidetracked. Yeah, so Helga Linnea, she she did something like 150 films. She had a really successful career. Oh yeah, lots of uh, lots of uh, uh, lots of televisions, lots of Spanish television yeah. in the early 2000s. And yeah, she's she's she mm-hmm. has uh, she has had an amazing career, and she is very talented. Yeah, and she's German, right? I think originally. Well, she was born in Germany, but right. the vast majority of her career uh, did circle around uh, Spain and uh, Italy. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, so that was fun to see her and her twin appear uh, in this film. Um, I don't know if there's anyone else particularly that is there anyone else in the cast that you wanted to mention. I'm pretty much unfamiliar with all of them apart from the main two. Uh, well, uh, I I do. Think it's I, I do really enjoy the actor who plays uh, the inspector, um, uh, inspector, inspector Milton. Milton. I think mm. he's great. He's uh, uh, I have not seen him in uh, a lot of other movies. Um, he's he's very good in both of these uh, criminal films. Uh, he uh, he passed away in uh, 2012, but had a had a pre- had a pretty steady career up until the mid 80s when he. He stopped doing this. I ran across him in uh, Lucio Fulci's Manhattan Baby, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which is uh, the, the the place that most stood out for me as something that I recognized him from. And he yeah. was in uh, a few spaghetti westerns across the the '60s, which is a big shock. And he also, uh-huh. and this will, you know, it just for for giggles, he does play a bank manager in Danger Diabolic. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, of course. Uh, oh, yeah. I should say his name, and, uh, Andrea Bozic. Uh, uh-huh. He was a Yugoslavian actor, and uh, he had worked with Lindsay before in uh, Sandokan the Great, and uh, so uh, I, uh, that the casting may have been because that uh, because because of that association. Uh, he worked right. with him on a couple of films before yeah. this one. So he, 
he was in Ricardo Freire's Machiste al Inferno, mm-hmm. um, which, for the benefit of you, because I don't know if you can see me on the camera, I have a poster for that on the wall just over my shoulder. I don't oh, know if you yeah. can see that. Uh, so that's quite fun. <laughs> that's a good one, actually. Mach- <laughs> Machiste al Inferno is really good. Machiste goes to hell. Um, yes, we will also see our man Andrea here. We'll see him again. He's in um, Argo Man. So, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's he, right. He'll pop up again in there. Yeah, okay, yes, good point, because he's in both films, actually playing the same character. It's mm-hmm. basically a very similar dynamic that um, Diabolic has with the with sort of the, the police. It's worth mentioning, actually. It's an, I think there was, there was this sense in Italy that bad things couldn't happen, so Diabolic is set basically in France. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. And Criminal is, is set in England. We're supposedly where you know he's he's being dogged by Scotland Yard. He does travel to the continent after the the beginning of the film. Yeah, yeah, but he, like the houses that he's at, which are supposed to be still in in England, are obviously in Italy. Um, I mean, yeah, they, are, they are much more Italian in their uh, layout, especially those spacious backyards. Yeah, yeah. there's a house they go to that's called Villa de something. Like the name of it is Italian, but and they give that a big <laughs> close up even though they're supposedly in London. The geography as well at the beginning of this film of London is hilariously wrong. Um, well, I think, but, you know. I don't know if that's true or not, but I've always felt that the, the geography of Danger Diabolic is, is similarly odd in yeah. that it's, it's, it, it, they, they're keeping it as vague as possible as to, to mm. which, which country you're in. And even when they're well, yeah. being specific, it's like, di- I don't know if that's di- yeah. what that looks like. Yeah. Diabolic is, is quite vague, but it's kind of all French. Um, but this one specifically says it's in London, which is pretty funny. There's a sequence where he runs from... Well, and no, I'll get to that when we talk about the plot. But yeah, the geography of London is all over the place. Uh, but, and of course, um, of course, we know we're in London because the first thing we see in the film is London Bridge. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, I was just there yesterday by total coincidence. Right, shall we have a go at the plot? Um, oh yeah, let's do it. There's let's a couple of things... I wanted to mention, yeah, this beginning. So I'm using the plot summary from Roberta Curti's book. The ruthless thief and cold-blooded murderer known as Criminal escapes from a London prison just a few moments before he is to be hanged. Now, we should mention here that there is a good reason why he escaped. Well, he's being hanged because he stole the crown jewels. And Mm -hmm. I was trying to work out why that would be a hanging offence, and I suppose maybe because it's treason, that's the only thing I could think of. I, I think, think treason... it's probably a hanging offense because that is the most cinematic way in which yeah. to watch this character die. Tree treason may have still been a capital because we still had capital punishment in the UK up until about 1969, but it was generally only for murderers. But maybe treason would have counted. So, but um, he escapes because Milton, who I'm sure regretted it moments later had actually arranged for him to escape. He's helped him to escape because he's hoping that he will lead him back to the Crown Jewels because they still haven't found them. Basically, Criminal will not tell them where they are. Mm -hmm. So he figures the only way he's going to get them back is by helping Criminal escape. And so they've got this whole sequence of Criminal escaping out of London and then running through London and the police are following him and watching him and there's a really f- and they had some um, they clearly had some money making this movie because they're on location they're actually in London and it's not second unit it's the whole gang 
uh, because we see Criminal cross the road in front of Buckingham Palace. Yeah. And and then it cuts to the police who are parked down some side street, which I just want to say is nowhere near Buckingham Palace. Um, and they say, <laughs> yes, he's now heading, he's just passing the docks and heading west. It's like, so and, Adrian, stop destroying the, the, the reality of the film for me. Stop. <laughs> like, if you're passing the docks... The docks are nowhere near Buckingham Palace. The docks are in the east. Or <laughs> miles away, yes. Yeah, they're in the east, miles away, and the west end is kind of where Buckingham Palace is. So I don't know where he's going. But also, did you notice uh, Umberto Lenzi has a cameo here? He plays oh. one of the... Oh. Umberto Lenzi is one of the cops. He's standing, leaning against a wall, reading a newspaper. Oh, my um, goodness, I did not know that. Yeah, wearing sunglasses, that's Umberto Lenzi. So he gets a line as, as one of the cops who's watching criminal so they're following him to try and find out where the crown jewels are but then basically they lose him and he sends the crown jewels back as a present to milton anyway because he can't he can't get rid of them they're too hot so the whole thing was basically pointless <laughs> the whole thing was a great big a great big circle of nothing just yeah. for entertainment value apparently yeah. and in, and in the context of the film it would be just entertainment value for for a criminal, he's just doing this yeah. to to kind of to have a laugh to a degree, but it almost got him killed. I mean, let's. I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, hounded by Scotland Yard's Inspector Milton, criminal is sheltered by his ex-wife Margie, who is currently the secretary of Lady Gold, the owner of an import-export jewelry firm. Mm-hmm. So, some nice nominative determinism going on there. <laughs> um, Criminal learns that a large amount of diamonds will be shipped to Turkey the next day. And you just know that's going to play into things. Now, there's a lot of... Yeah, so he sets up a plan to steal them at the airport. So this is where we discover that Lady Gold's amazing um, security plan is to have two... is to hire a pair of twins, one of whom will be carrying the diamonds in a briefcase and the other one will be carrying... Nothing. Just an empty briefcase, right? That's kind of the... Um, and the, these twins are, of course, played by Helga Linné. So Criminal is going to uh, intervene at the airport. I don't think he realises until he gets to the airport and sees the two women. I think he thinks there's only one or something. Mm-hmm. So he's not fully in on the plan. And then, um, so he follows the wrong sister and he's got this magic cigarette, which if he blows it in someone's face, they pass out. And I was wondering whether that was some kind of drugs reference. I, I honestly, it just seems to be a, a special, like a James Bond like gadget yeah. to be able to knock someone out in public yeah. without drawing attention to yourself. So he uh, he steals the bag, but it's empty, and that that twin is then out of the movie. We never hear of her again, and he heads off to Istanbul to follow the other twin. Um. And then, but meanwhile, he discovers that Lady Gold has claimed that the diamonds were stolen. Mm-hmm. So she's like ripping off the insurance company, and he then decides that she must have set him up. Is that right? I'm already, even though I'm reading a plot summary here, I'm finding that this plot is sl- slipping through my fingers like sand. But well, the, the, she... the, yes, it, it's it's clear that since the diamonds actually have not been stolen. Uh, it, it, it seems that either she's um, scamming the insurance company or they're uh, 
the uh, she's reporting it this way in advance of knowing which one of the two um which one of the two couriers was actually knocked unconscious mm-hmm. and st- and had the her bag stolen at the airport so uh yeah it you know it, the film does you know lay it all out for us yeah, eventually um, but the fact so that then, it's big news like the fact that it's big news that quick does point toward her kind of uh aiming to collect the insurance money so basically then the, we we start to realize that maybe Inga who is the twin I think that does make it to Istanbul mm-hmm. is in on this as well and she has some um there's a guy whose name is is a guy who's sort of her her lover yeah who she's already you know, she's already struck some kind of uh, deal with to make off with the diamonds and themselves yeah and he he's a he, he's a dealer at a casino um I've forgotten his name because it's not on the IMDb. I'm not sure what his name was either. Maybe we should just soldier yeah. on. Anyway, <laughs> if it's not on the IMDb, it doesn't exist. Um, <laughs> but so basically, without just cover, describing the rest of the plot, so he's now trying to get the diamonds and trying to sort of cross and double cross. And there's a lot of reliant. His plans often seem to rely on some pretty thin possibilities of stuff actually happening or on coincidence Mm. there's one bit in particular so this guy who is from the casino who's sort of in cahoots with Inga he breaks into his house dressed in the costume and hides and puts this uh, he replaces his can of shaving foam and then the next morning this guy goes to shave now I don't know about you Rod but I haven't like I've been using an electric razor since the late 90s so it's been a long time since I've used shaving foam but you don't normally spray the shaving foam directly onto your face from the can do you? <laughs> no uh, I do tend to put it into my hand work it into a lather and then apply it to my face yes so this guy just sprays it straight into his face but of course it's acid <laughs> and I just thought did as you know maybe criminal's been spying on this guy to make note of his habits and then thought hmm this guy's really weird he shaves the he sprays it straight he sprays the stuff face. straight onto his face that's dangerous I wonder if I can do something with that yeah, because otherwise be otherwise his plan was gonna was originally to just burn this guy's hand right like what's he gonna I, do just but that wouldn't have worked because the entire plan that he has set <laughs> up is, <laughs> is to is to have him with his face and head wrapped in bandages so. yeah so then he can take his place so I just thought there's a lot of kind of what ifs involved there, but anyway, but that that seemed quite funny to me. There's a few places, especially in the next film as well. Where Adrian, like I'm heck, going to need you to stop thinking so hard oh, about these bizarre, elaborate, insane, completely impossible plots, yeah, and just let it wash over you as the psychotic <laughs> thing that it is. Yeah, it's funny. You're not entering anyway. into the spirit of it, Adrian. Yeah, I know. I know. It's funny. Um, also, we should mention there are occasional comic book panels that pop up on the screen. Yes, which I found uh, very entertaining. Yeah, which is quite fun. I don't know whether it was budgetary, but it seems to be mainly, or especially in the second film, they want us to see what Criminal or other characters are thinking. So it cuts to a kind of comic panel, and then we get a speech bubble mm-hmm. of, uh, of what they're thinking. In this uh, film, inver- Invariably in Italian, which yes. of course hampered my, in, in my, <laughs> hampered my understanding a bit, but... <laughs> That's true, because the subtitles didn't always translate the uh, speech bubbles. 
in this movie, the actual the whole ending of the film is done in comic book panels, which makes me wonder whether they just ran out of time and didn't film it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think that um, I have I have a theory about that, and it's based on absolutely nothing. We get to the end of the okay. film, and the film wraps itself up in a in a in a in a nice tight little way, and then we have comic book panels. Uh, kind of uh, that kind of kick the door back open on the possibilities of more adventures for our main character yeah and I do wonder if that was done that way um, if that was the original intent or if that was an idea of hey we you know we might want to do more of these so let's kind of you know make sure mm-hmm. we have a a way to you know hinge our way from this film into a second film. Yeah. by in, intimating that this wasn't really him getting caught yet again. Although I don't understand. They, they start this movie with him captured and about to be hanged. So yeah. why wouldn't they have just thought, well, we'll just start the second film that way too uh, and yeah. just have him you know, manage to escape in a, in a different way at the beginning of the second movie? But well, I, I don't yeah. know. Well, at the, yeah, so it, what it appears to be at the end, so it looks like he's been captured um, by a character who we'd all forgotten about who then suddenly turns up again at the end. And turns out to have been working with the police. Yeah, and but I was then, really, I was really happy with that. That was a nice yeah. little turn there because you know, she's, yeah. the 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 character in particular is is just memorable enough for you to go, oh yeah, she's wow, that's weird, she's back in the film, and then it's like, ah, yeah. very nice. But then, um, yeah, so he looks like he's captured. He escapes, but then the police are there and they capture him mm-hmm. because at the beginning of the next film, the police believe that he's still in jail in Istanbul, but somehow. Right. He's managed to escape, and some got someone else to take his place. Although that that's never explained exactly how he persuaded someone else to take his place in prison. Um, oh yeah, yes about, it is. Oh, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Money? Later, in the, later in the film, uh, apparently the 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 guy who uh, uh, took his place in jail. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Am I crossing this up with another film? <laughs> Wasn't this someone who uh, was going to be dying anyway? Nope, nope. This has to be no, something. That's another this, movie. But no, no that's got to be a this, different movie. This is but, something that's happened in other films. Oh my goodness! I've seen too many films all at once. This is yeah. crazy. Doesn't this also happen in? Um, it's in one of the Fu Manchu films. Yes, but, at the, uh, as a matter of fact, the first of the Christopher Lee Fu yeah. Manchu films starts with with Fu Manchu having his head cut off in an execution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the opening sequence of the film, yeah. and you're just like, "Well, it's, that's that's interesting." I, wrong, what is the rest credits. of it in flashback? And it's just like, yeah. "No, he's just." <laughs> wrangled someone to be plastic yeah. surgeoned into place yeah but um yeah well so the the fir- the second film picks up pretty much where it left off and again also manages to do quite a lot of international travel mm-hmm. which is quite impressive we're in istanbul again it's very euro spy yeah now films. we should point out that and th- this is you know this is kind of the obvious thing staring at us from across the room um the fact that the 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 these various comic books, Diabolic and Criminal, all, they, they the, the comic books, the Fumetti, preceded the James Bond film series by a couple of years. But by the time these movies are being made, the James Bond films have have started. A couple or three of them have already been produced and are on the big screen and are gigantic worldwide hits. So yeah. the Bond films are a real influence on how these things are being brought to the big screen. So what you're seeing here is kind of the, the the darkness of those Fumetti comics, those adult comics produced in Italy, being put through the cinematic sensibilities of the James Bond series 
and um, they're they're being you know a bit of a payoff um, financially. Obviously, they they did make two of these these films, these criminal films, but at the same time, the uh, the cross you know the cross pollination between these two types of things. Uh, are they? They tend to, in my opinion, when looking back, anyway, they tend, they seem to have kind of watered down what could have been a really particularly nasty thing. I do think that Danger Diabolic escapes, you know, be, being made in '68, where maybe there's there luckily have been a bit more time to pass to realize that maybe the Euro Spy thing wasn't going to be the the thing that lasts us for 20 years. Uh, and so I think that well, that and having Bava at the helm is a is a whole different can, whole different can of worms of creative creative genius. But at the the this this film and, and a few of the others are going to feel like uh, they're still hangovers and part of the Euro spy genre to a large degree. Yeah, and they didn't all get. I think there was hope with this film that it would get international distribution, but for, as far as I can tell, it didn't really. Yeah, it did not. At all. Um, that and that's why there. I mean, as far as I can tell, there was never an English dub of it at all. No. So you're anytime you're watching it, you're going to have to be well for English speakers anyway. You're going to have to be watching a subtitled version. I, yeah. I was a little surprised that it didn't get. Um, You'd uh, think an English dub because I think perhaps to a degree he was. You know, they're, they're trying to go with the um, the success of Batman and you'd think that that might have been reciprocated and American audiences might have responded to some of these films because of the connections to the sort of similarity to the Batman films but yeah, yeah. no evidently evidently not um, but they did manage a sequel so two years later there we've got um, The Mark of Criminal 1968 which um, is not directed by Umberto Lenzi but Glenn Saxon is back, and as we said, Helga Lanet is back as the uh, third sister, <laughs> or not. And Inspector Milton is back as well. And Inspector Milton is back, who's getting married, which is quite fun. He's supposed to be getting married, but mm-hmm. uh, Criminal kind of ruins his wedding. Um, the plot is based around, I think it's basically based on the Sherlock Holmes story, The Adventure of the Six Napoleons. Which is the one? Oh, well, where, you may be right there. I I, yeah, I had not really thought about that, but yeah, where yeah. yeah, where there's somebody going around breaking into people's houses and smashing Napoleon statues, but then it turns out that they're looking for something that's hidden inside mm-hmm. one of them. And I thought it might be based on that. I don't know, but because in this in this one, criminal again, there's a lot of sort of reliance on coincidence. He happens to break a statue. Well, I was yeah, I was is, about to say the entire thing that with these with these statues. The whole start of Criminal's yeah. interest in this is purely accidental. So they, him and his girlfriend are running this business where they basically take out insurance claims on old women and then kill them. Um, and then one of the women they've killed, and also he, I think he is the he doesn't he run the funeral home where the funerals are held at the women. But then I don't know. Well, I think he, of, he seems he seems to be uh, he seems to be running the. Um, the old folks' home where these people live. Yeah, and mysteriously die. Uh, and one of them had a statue, this green Buddha, and he accidentally smashes it, and they discover a piece of map in it. And uh, luckily for him, there is a letter on the back explaining what to do with all these pieces of map, which is very helpful. I mean, imagine because if otherwise of, there would be no film. Yeah, because imagine if he'd got one of the other ones and it was just a random piece of map. He'd have no idea what to do with it. So, <laughs> yeah, so... The, that then launches him to go and find the other pieces of map because it's leading. To, it's basically Indiana Jones. This story, 
it's sort of leading to um, finding some stolen a stolen Goya and um, another was it a Rembrandt something like that. Yeah, two pa- two paintings that uh, that that's the that's the initial that's the treasure that they're after. Yeah, that are hidden in a tomb in uh, I want to say Beirut. Was it Beirut? I Somewhere believe like so. I know that's yeah. definitely one of the shooting locations. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, they're going to go. So they've got to find the pieces to put the map together to go and find these paintings. We get back. We see Criminal getting back to his old ways. I thought this was maybe a comment on the comics because since. Uh, the first criminal film in the comics he settled down he's got himself a wife he's a bit less violent towards women so in this film we see him also settled down he's got this woman who's his partner in business partner criminal partner mm-hmm. sexual partner presumably but but by the I, end I, of the I first, would assume so yeah by the end of the first act he he realizes that she's going to kill him to go and get the pieces of map for herself so he kills her first by electrocuting her in the bath and um, and then runs off as a single man to go and find Helgeline and uh, the other pieces of map. <laughs> he just made it sound as if he were running toward Helgeline when it's yeah. by chance that he runs across yeah. her. But, you know, if if one had the opportunity to run toward Helgeline, mm-hmm. I'm assuming that you would. I mean, how did you think the second film compared with the first one? I'll be honest, I kind of enjoyed the second film a little more than the first and that may be, you know, that may strike some people as sacrilegious or ridiculous or just plain obvious madness on my part. But <laughs> I really kind of did because there seem there there's so many things going on. Yeah. Uh there the the whole uh uh attempt at a wedding for Inspector Milton, that whole sequence I found incredibly entertaining. Uh yeah. and how it ties into, you know, one of the Buddhas, which, you know, once again, super coincidental. And yes. then, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the but this whole the, the the whole you know Buddha statue plotline is built on ridiculous coincidence after ridiculous coincidence. So yeah. okay, fine, let's roll with it. Especially when it's going to be this fast and kind of entertaining as hell. And so yeah. this movie works for me a little better than the first one. Yeah, because I think it's it's got a stronger plot, definitely. I think so. It feels like there's a better through line for the film, and I enjoyed watching this ride and it's like you know the in in, i i could have seen myself in a different universe thinking that you know if i had seen this movie before i had seen the first film i might see the first film in any in an even lesser light than i do i i like the first film i do i get I, i get a lot of fun out of it but i do kind of enjoy the second one more the only place that i think uh, I prefer well. There are a couple of places I prefer uh, the the first film. Uh, first of all, two Hel- Helgelines is always better than one. So you know, true point for the first film. Uh, and also, I really like the score of the first film more than I do the second. Oh. Um, I do I do really enjoy the the score for the for the first film a lot. <clears throat> it's by a composer who apparently did not do uh, a lot of film work at all. Only a few movies. Did he uh, score? He was a he was a jazz musician. Uh, his name was Romano uh, Mussolini, and I do wonder about that last name. If that was yes. what kind of burden that was to bear, but um, <laughs> he was a, he was an Italian jazz pianist. 
Uh, and he even ended up being a film producer, but he only did scores for a handful of movies, and this is one of them. And uh, as soon as I saw his name and realized that I didn't know much about him, I thought I would seek out more of his movie work and realize that nah, most of his work was just in, you know, just for, you know, different jazz albums, different uh, different things for different um, uh uh, albums over the source of his uh, all of the, over the length of his career, uh, in, including all the way up into the uh, the two thousands. He didn't pass away until two thousand six, and was apparently still working on things at the time. Uh, but yeah, I I do love the score of the first film. But if I had to decide to rewatch one of these movies, I might end up going with the second one on a second viewing, just because I think it, it it's it's a little bit more fun. Uh, it, it it holds my interest more. I, it's not so. It doesn't feel so episodic. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, he was actually you know, Benito Mussolini was his dad. Um, so yeah, yeah, and, that, and like been, I say, there's must have been interesting. There's a little something to that. So yeah, wow. Yeah, apparently he did write a book about it called Il Duce Mio Padre, the leader my father, which sounds. Uh, could be interesting yeah um oh and he was married to sophia loren's sister so yeah that's an interesting guy to uh to learn more about i'm sure um i do i do love his score for the first criminal Mm. film so yeah fair enough yeah it's good yeah it is it's if they're they're both fun films and they do blend quite well together like they they follow one follows after the other pretty well Mm -hmm. but uh, and, and they yeah, don't so, feel like a massive tonal or stylistic shift from one no. to the other either. They do feel like two, you know, kind of two you know, two peas in a pod. They do feel yeah. like uh, one film is a sequel to the other. It's very, yeah. it's very straightforward. There's not a massive change in the way the films feel. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's good. There's a great start to the season. A double bill there of uh, criminal films. Both. Oh, of I which... had one last oh, little on. thing I'd almost yeah. forgotten about. Uh, and this may be down to we've already we've already talked about the fact that the only way to really see these movies is to watch uh, subtitled versions. There's no English dub, so yeah. uh, I'm not so sure what uh, how, how let's 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 put it this way. I'm not so sure how much we can rely on the dubs. The I mean, sorry, the subtitles that we have. Because I fear that some of the some of these subtitles may have been done yeah, by um, they're not great. by fans. I don't think they're yes. necessarily professional. No, they're not. <laughs> but at the very beginning of the first film, uh, when they're you know when Inspector Milton and a couple of other uh, policemen are uh, waiting for the execution to take place of our main character, uh, one of the uh, police officers there, and he's not seen in the rest of the film, is a French uh, police officer who they refer to as Magre, M-A-I-G-R-E-S. Now, that is not M-A-I-G-E-T, which would make me think that they were referencing in some sly fashion that very famous uh, French detective. But uh, it's a possibility, and I've not seen anybody mention that before, and I just kind of was curious as to whether or not the the subtitles we have... I mean, you can listen to the soundtrack, that it does seem to be the name that's being spoken in Italian. So I do wonder if that's something that's kind of flown under the radar for other people. Mm, That would make sense. Um, Yeah, no, they are. They're fun fun movies. Um, And it's always interesting to see somebody like um, Umberto Lenzi to see what somebody like him was doing before mm-hmm. he became the Umberto Lenzi of the 
the late 60s with the Jally and then into the 70s and then getting to the cannibal films and stuff. I mean, I think by the time he'd done Criminal, he'd done about 20 films. So he was already a very experienced filmmaker by this point before he was the Umberto Lenzi that that everybody knows. Although by all accounts, he was already at this point quite difficult to work with. Uh, (laughs) Just yesterday I was reading through um, some of the introductory paragraphs of Troy Howarth's book and basically the, the, the gist of it is Umberto Lenzi was not a great guy <laughs> like was not a very easy person to know or be around and um, I read a quote here in Roberto Curti's book he quotes Glenn Saxon who says um, working with Lenzi was easy although I was warned in advance that he could be a bit hysterical so you know that's even before he was the sort of famous director that he became so yeah uh, well i i have heard similar things from different yeah. people and uh it's not 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 that much of a shock apparently no. uh, he could he could be uh the, uh the the word i would use would be the would be prickly he could be uh someone <laughs> Uh, basically, I've heard similar words used to describe what it w- what it was like at times working with Lucio Fulci. Right. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But still, like I said, it's always interesting to see what these kind of directors were doing before they really hit the things that would make them the the sort of trademark names that they became. So yeah. So that's Criminal. Um, next episode, when we finally manage to get to it, we'll be uh, we'll be checking out Super Argo. Uh, which is basically he's basically a Mexican masked wrestler. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are sort of he's we're going from a villain to a hero uh, with the next one. Um, before we finish up, I just wanted to mention a couple of um, bits of uh, feedback, well messages that we've had. Um, some these ones that I should have covered in the last episode we did before Christmas, but I forgot. So apologies. Um, so uh, we did an episode where we talked a lot about Femi Benusi. Uh, if you remember Femi Benusi, mm-hmm. we talked about her and how she was one of the Jungle Girls and how we didn't really know much about her. We couldn't find much on her. So um, Al got in touch. Uh, thank you, Al. He said, Rod and his podcast led me to this one. And I love your discussions about Italian genre cinema. So thanks, Rod, for the uh, marketing there. We do what we can. <laughs> on the last episode, you discussed Femi Benusi and not being able to find much information about her. So he mentioned an article that he found um, that he had to run through translation to to, to get it. But um, anyway, he sent me the article and it was really good and I tweeted it out. And I also then, by looking at some of the things in that article, I found another one that covers similar things. So she did an interview in 1977, um, which is was in Italian, but it's quoted on the Westerns Alitaliana blog. So I did tweet that out um, as well. But well worth looking at because she actually does talk a bit about how she feels about her career. So that was in 1977. She also apparently did an interview. She came out of retirement to do an interview in 2001 Hmm. for a magazine called Cine 70. But I cannot find that magazine. I can't find a copy of it on eBay. I can't find anything online other than a reference to the fact that she did one. So it t- appears that she did talk about her career a little bit. So if you're wanting to find out more about Femi Benusi, check out the Westerns Alitaliana blog, 
or look at our Twitter and you'll see that I did tweet that out. So thanks Al for pointing us in that direction. We also had an email from Kurt um, who contacted us about the Jungle Queens and he said, I'm so glad you covered Samoa Queen of the Jungle. I think we're all glad that we covered that. Um, particularly glad you pointed out it was written by one of the guys who later wrote Cannibal Holocaust which I didn't know. To my mind, this explains a lot about it, and I wonder what you think. Does it preview any of the themes in Cannibal Holocaust? I'd already been wondering about the second Gungala movie directed by Ruggiero Diodato. In the original Gungala film, the blonde protagonist was a straight arrow with a much more heroic moustache. <laughs> <laughs> by the end of the second movie, he turned into a diamond-grabbing jerk who needed to be punched. That is true. These Jungle Girl movies were made in 1968, a banner year for anti-establishment messages. In the original Gungala, the hero may have been a straight arrow, but he was surveying for uranium in the service of those who wanted to dig resources out from under the resident's feet. When when Diodato directed the second Gungala movie, could he have been slipping in a comment about exploiters of indigenous people? I might be reading too much into this, but I wonder, I'll probably, sorry, but I wonder, full stop. I'll probably never make myself watch Cannibal Holocaust, but I understand it's heavy on the theme of exploiting indigenous people. The book Darkness in El Dorado wouldn't be published for two more decades, with its claim that Amazon researchers incited violence among the Yanomami. Yeah. Let me, let me have a go at that again. Yanomami people. But I wonder if this stuff was in the air in 1968 and 1980. Well, yeah, I mean, probably. I think that's the the sort of the because the Italian uh, there was Italian colonization uh, around the Amazon and, and that kind of things and so that would have been in the I would imagine in the sort of well Italian Portuguese Spanish I mean, yeah well exactly so I imagine that's the kind of thing that they would have been aware of and talking about and certainly yeah anti-establishment uh, messages would have come through I think. Um, I mean, as for Cannibal Holocaust, uh, you and I have talked about this before. I think the first time I ever appeared on the Bloody Pit was to talk about Cannibal Holocaust. Yes. And I know, I understand why people don't want to watch it, but I think it's a masterpiece. Um, I think we can both sympathize with people who are yeah, unwilling well, exactly. to watch it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But it is, <laughs> it is a masterpiece. Uh, it's basically. an astonishing piece of work. It is, yeah. It's amazing, yeah. It's uh, it's it's heads and shoulders above the other film. It's like it's not almost not fair lumping it in with the other sort of Italian cannibal films, which generally are far leaning far more heavily on exploitation. Yeah, and there's a lot less on the minds of most of those films than yeah. there is. And he's he's right to point out that Cannibal Holocaust, or to talk about the uh, perception of Cannibal Holocaust being anti-colonialism and anti-exploitation of uh, native native cultures which is very true that is the main thrust of everything that that film presents Uh, there are no i mean the closest to a good character in that film is the person who's discovering the footage and just being disgusted by it you know yeah who turns out to be a porn star which is a good twist yes yes the uh the, the guy who could take the moral high ground is a is a porn actor uh yeah <laughs> but yeah uh, i mean to be fair to umberto lenzi the the man from deep river 
is also quite good at be at sort of presenting an anti-colonial message. Yeah, and I do like that film very much. Less so, I mean, Eaten Alive and Cannibal Ferox. Are those far, are just exploitation films. Far Let's more just clear. exploitation films. Yeah. Although, I mean, you know, I've got a soft spot for Eaten Alive. Maybe it's because it's Mimi Lay. I don't know. Uh, I think she's, <laughs> oh well, it might, have, might uh, have something to do with it. It may have something <laughs> to do with it. Yes, sir. Speaking of which, did you know? I didn't know this until quite recently. Mimi Lai, she was British, and she left acting and be- and came in, uh, joined the police. She was in the British police. Wow! And at, le- at least on one occasion, she was in a police squad that raided a video shop that was that had video nasties um, available, which <laughs> during the whole video nasty thing. Oh my! She was she was with the police raiding uh, and taking away copies of films that she was in. That's pretty, amazing. Pretty funny. Uh, she's talked about that in an interview, which is quite funny. Anyway, sorry. Yes, so uh, back to cut. Samoa seems a much clearer case of an exploitation movie being about the perils of treating exploiters as heroes. Yeah. Now I'm wondering about writer Gianfranco Clerici's other movies. Yeah, very true. Finally, he says, you got me wondering about the passivity of most jungle girls in the movies they headlined. If these movies had been hits... Were the filmmakers leaving room for Tarzan to appear in any sequels? There seemed to be a clear division of labour between Jungle Girls and Jungle Guys, with the girls being at one with nature while the guys stabbed crocodiles. (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. Instead of making the girls the action-oriented protagonists, was the field being left open for the addition of Jungle Hunks? We may never know, but Kitty Swan did appear in those Tarzan or Zan movies after playing Gungala. Uh, and then he closes. Thanks for all you do. Be well and keep watching the vines. Well, I, yes, pos- possibly that's an interesting way of thinking about it. It's always mm. to me just appeared to be the uh, the, the typical male gaze uh, yeah. and the, the 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 kind of masculine view of the fairer sex as being you know, easy. You know, the, being the, the the gender that would get get more in sync with nature as opposed to the brawny you know white hunter type who would just muscle his way through cutting a path through the jungle to get to what he wants but um that's an interesting idea that maybe there if if the if the um if the genre the 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 jungle girl genre hadn't flamed out quite so hard in what 18 months if maybe there hadn't been uh if there'd been more and more of them produced then maybe there would have been a crossover where you had the more nature-oriented female character kind of butting heads with or teaming up in some strange capacity with a more tarzan-like character that could have been interesting yeah there was a resurgence, wasn't there, in the eighties of the sort of Jungle Girl movie? Didn't was Farrah, a couple of yeah. There were a few that were produced in the eighties. Yeah. Am I misremembering this, or did Farrah Fawcett do one? Oh, not to the mind knowledge. Uh, no. What am I there was uh, there was Sheena. They did that nineteen eighty four film of Sheena with. Um, um, oh my goodness! Why am I blanking on her name? Because I actually uh, I actually do really have a lot of time for that particular film. Oh, it's uh, uh, Tanya Roberts. Right. And uh, it's actually uh, the okay. one film that she was ever in that I was kind of impressed with her effort. Uh, she's uh, very okay. good in it. I mean, That's she's... what I was thinking of. Does, is she more of an action uh, type in that one? Yes. She gets to do yes. a bit more action. There's a, there's, a, there's a fair amount of action going on in that film, and she's right. kind of at the center of it. There's a lot of... Uh, oh, okay. There's a lot of... Uh, the, the, it's It's... 
let's put it this way. I avoided the 1984 Sheena, Queen of the Jungle film for a very long time. I think I caught parts of it occasionally on cable in the late 80s and just ignored it because I had, you know, I had my snobbish nose in the air at the time being a younger man and a much more foolish one. And then years later in the 2000s when I decided, no, it's time to go back and watch that. I had read some of the Sheena pulp stories that this the film was based on and wanted to really kind of take a look and i was stunned by how much i enjoyed the film and how close it was to adapting a couple of those pulp stories from the uh from the 50s it shocked me and i really enjoyed the movie and so i did a complete 180 on it and just was standing there staring at staring at myself in the mirror and going my god i'm a fan of sheena so i like this movie (laughs) yeah that's the one i for some reason i was thinking um Farrah Fawcett was in that, but it was uh, somebody else with, with blonde hair. Uh, you may you may have dreamed something that you wished yeah, existed, and and now that you've mentioned it, yeah. I also wish that it existed. So. Yeah. But yeah, so she gets to be a bit more action oriented than the uh, the sixties mm-hmm. girls, uh, Jungle Girls, which is yeah, it is interesting that maybe they, I mean they could have done if if they'd have made more of those movies, you can see them teaming up with Jungle Guys, and then you know having Jungle Children and. <laughs> all, all that sort of stuff, but kind anyway. of an expansion of the Tarzan family yeah. from the from the Weissmuller film series in the thirties yeah. and forties. Yeah. That's it. Anyway, thanks, Kurt. And if you want to get in touch with us, there are various ways you can do that. You can. The easiest thing to do is email us, which is just um, wildworldpodcast at gmail dot com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter at the Wild Pod. We are also on Instagram. And um, or you could leave us a, a comment on whichever podcast provider of choice. Leave us a review. Um, yeah, or whatever. I don't know. I'm sure there are other ways. There must be. Tie a message to um, a pigeon and send it <laughs> off in the hope that it finds one of us. I don't know. That would be fairly impossible. But take you know, take a <laughs> shot. Who knows. So anyway, that's it for today. Thanks everybody for listening. Uh, welcome back to a new season and to an, another year, hopefully, of podcasting about the films that the world should not have forgotten. Oh, that's a good way of putting it. I like that. Quite a tagline. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit clunky, but I'll, I'll, I'll work on it. I'll see if I can do We'll, we'll, we'll workshop it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's, that's good right? So yes, join us next time for Super Argo versus Diabolicus and maybe Super Argo and the Faceless Giants if we can be bothered but we'll see <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, love, I love the way you put it maybe yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. I'll think about it yeah we're, we're, we're busy guys let's, there's uh, a, there's let's not forget on our plate currently yes. we, we, we came up with the plan for this podcast during lockdown when, the, when it seemed like we had all the time in the world uh, I miss those days in many ways Ah, there are things about it that I miss as well, my friend. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> but uh, anyway, so but, yeah, the we'll, we podcast when we can podcast, and that's the best we can do. And on that positive note, I will say thank you for listening. Uh, come back again soon. Bye for now. Bye, everyone.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.